Today's podcast is brought to you by Panic at the Disco. Catchy synth pop and cocaine. Ha <laughs> ha! Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, she is the Democratic nominee for the 25th Congressional District in Austin, Texas. Julie Oliver, thanks for being on the Justin News Podcast. Oh, thank you, Justin, for having me. So I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I, I'm, I'm so glad uh, we were talking, of course, uh, over the phone here because uh, we were going to meet in person. And uh, you, of course, with, with the coronavirus, you're the first person politician I've talked to uh, since the outbreak here in the U.S. So I, I want to get to that in just a second. But um, and of course, I want to talk about your campaign and what's happening in Austin. But uh, I, I have to say, like for, for folks who are just finding out about you, whether it's on a national or a local level, uh, you do have quite an incredible story. And uh, I mean, you were you grew up in, in poverty. Uh, you were a single mom at age 17. Uh then you went to law school. Now you're the Democratic nominee uh, for the U.S. House of Representatives. And yet, with all of that, you know, I go to your Twitter page and I see the the really cool video that you have, um, you know, really touching video that you've got on your your Twitter profile and uh, talking about why you're running. And yet, you don't, you you know, you you specifically call out the pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of story, and instead you say it's about the community that supported you through all that. And so my question to you is, is why, like, why be so humble? Because I mean, if I were you, I'd be doing victory laps. I would, you know, I would be (laughs) telling everybody to suck it. Like you instead are like, just you're, 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 you know, saying, Hey, the community is the one who support me. What, what, why is that? You know, we live in the age of Trump. Like why not brag a little bit? It's, it's so funny, probably a little bit of, um, uh, I hate to use the, the phrase Christian guilt, uh, pride cometh before the fall. <laughs> no, you know, but no, the, re- no, the reality is um, we love Cinderella stories and, or the underdog story. We love that in America. And I get that. I love those stories too, just as much as anybody else. We love to see, um, you know, teams that uh, were these scrappy little teams that don't have the highest paid coach come from behind and basically win a victory, right? We love that. And the reality is there's so much at work behind the scenes that most people don't see. So they think that they really are these kind of magical, um, uh, you know, stories of, oh, I did this all by myself when nothing could be further from the truth. So that notion of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps doesn't exist. And it certainly doesn't exist in America because there are so many things that, um, work against people and most people fall down. I mean, okay. Going to my story, how many teen moms, you know, you get pregnant at the age of 17, you live in poverty. How many uh, teen moms go on then to perpetuate that cycle of poverty? Because it's so hard to get out of. It's hard to get out. It's it's hard to say, well, wait, do I go finish high school or do I go get a full-time job so that I can pay for childcare for my, my kid? And I get that on some level, it was a choice by me to... Um, 
to, to, you know, have a child at the age of 17, but it certainly doesn't help when kids are told that abstinence only, uh, sex education is the way to go because most teens don't practice abstinence. So it's, I feel very, very fortunate. My story was one that my mom lovingly took me back into her home after I'd been a teen runaway multiple times. I think I'd run away two or three times before I got pregnant and when I got pregnant, at least internally, I knew I couldn't run away anymore. I was not going to have a baby on the streets. But if my mother had said, you know what, Julie, you, you decided, you made these choices. You go figure it out. You go figure your life out. This would have had a very, very different ending. Um, my mom essentially became the child care provider for my oldest daughter. And if I didn't have that, you know, we do not have paid child care in America. That is the reality for many women. Um, if they have a child, they've got to go figure out how they can pay for that child. And the, the society doesn't help. Um, unless they have family members. Now, for me to be able to go to college and then eventually law school, there were some government programs in place. And they're actually, you know, um, women, infant, and children program. I was a Medicaid mom, so my health care was covered until I turned 18. And then I was on my own again, uninsured. But at least there were food programs that helped with the purchase of formula and some necessities um, while I had a, a, a baby. And um, there were government programs that were incredibly generous in the early 90s. One of them was the Pell Grant. The Pell Grant and the earned income credit were basically um, a life uh, jacket that was thrown to me as I'm flailing in the water. And for me, it was the opportunity to grab onto that life jacket or that life preserver, pull myself like truly like pull myself up to where I can breathe and like, wait a second, I actually can go to school between the two of those programs in the early nineties. I got about $10,000 a year. Wow. That is wow. remarkable. I mean, if you wow. think about like some of the, the proposals that Yang um, was advocating for, and now even what now that we're in the crisis of the coronavirus pandemic, a universal basic income of a thousand dollars a month just today. And that's almost essentially what I had uh, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. right. And it was remarkable because it did allow me to go to school full time and not have to worry about, um, certain things. That is not the reality in 2020. Um, the earned income tax credit has been scaled back. The Pell Grants have been scaled back. Kids are trying to figure out how do they pay for college. Um, and if they are lucky to uh, have parents pay for the college, great. But if they aren't, many of them are saddled with uh, thousands of dollars of debt that is is not what they should be saddled with when they're looking at their future and the opportunity to be a meaningful contributor to their communities. Yeah. So short, long, long way of saying if it wasn't for my mom, my neighbors, and honest to goodness, the federal programs that were available, my story would be very different and yeah. we wouldn't be talking about it today and there would have been no video on Twitter. <laughs> That's a, an amazing summary. And, and I couldn't help but think like while, while you were describing your story that uh, two things really. One, like that, that sounds to me a lot like a real American story. <laughs> you know, I, I think that a yeah. lot of times people have the bootstraps type of, you know, uh, narrative that they try to 
describe as as their American story as the American story, but the fact that you were able to that government programs were able to be there for you, as well as of course the support from your your mom and your community. Um, but like that that to me is is a way to frame uh, government as as something that can really help people versus like this hindrance that's just in the way that's like taking their tax money and all that kind of shit that you hear from Republicans all the time. Um, the second thing I had to say when I, when you were saying that is is early on you framed it in a sports analogy, which for me uh, helps make sense of a lot of things. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, <laughs> we love, we do. We, I love those stories. I'm not even a huge sports fan, but tell me, you tell me if somebody's going to go up against the New England Patriots and Tom Brady, I'll be rooting for that team. No offense to Patriots fans out there. Well, well, he's um, now a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, so so that, that's a real right. You're really rubbing salt in the wound there. <laughs> yeah, know, sorry, gas on the but fire. Yeah, for years and years, or the New York Yankees. You know, one. Yeah. You know. Um, year after year after year like everybody was rooting for the team that was not the new york yankees so it's you know and the new york yankees have a lot of money to spend on players and training and coaches and you know yeah so yeah when it comes to communication with constituents i mean even right now as you're campaigning you won the democratic nomination for the 25th district um you know but but assuming like you win and you go to congress you're in the house how do you communicate like victories and wins or even losses and progress and all that kind of stuff? Because I think one of the things that I personally, when I talk to a lot of great people, a lot of great politicians, um, I wonder like, okay, great. You've gotten there. So now how do you communicate that you're, you're doing things for your constituency and that they really feel like, okay, you know, and, and being honest about it, because sometimes obviously you can't control uh, a lot of what happens out there, you can only do your part. So how do you communicate right. that to, to the people who, who voted for you and who didn't vote for you? Well, I think there are a number of ways to do it. I, I, um, in 2018 when I ran and it's gone it, presently when I'm running 2020, I took the, um, town hall pledge and that is one of the most important pledges to me that I've signed. It, it means I will be back in my community in person, assuming that we're not, facing a pandemic in 2021 after I'm sworn into office. Um, but I will be back in my communities uh, at town halls, real town halls, not these fake town halls where you screen people before they can come in and make sure that they have their ID and you screen the questions before they ask. Anybody is welcome to come ask any questions. So I think that's one of the ways that I can be not only held accountable, but to be able to convey what are the victories and what are the challenges and setbacks and how can I get my community involved when we do have those challenges and setbacks? What are the things that we need to do to organize to achieve more victories for our community? Um, so I think that is one of the most important ways. I get that not everybody is going to come to an in-person event, but that still is really important to me that people can see me. People can say, oh, this isn't, she's not bullshitting right now. You know, I think people have a, they, I think everybody's bullshit detector is on high alert, except for maybe the most hardened of Trump supporters. Um, they apparently can eat that stuff like it was, you know, a Twinkie, uh, like loving it. But um, aside from that, um, I love, uh, I, think, I love Twinkies. I'm just, I, I you love know, Twinkies too. I, I just, That's what I'm like, I love 
Twinkies. Take me back, you know, to when I was 11 years old. That was my favorite thing in the world. I just don't want, I don't want the MAGA group, I don't want them to own Twinkies. You know, I'm I'm just, okay. I'm saying that they they eat the stuff up that Trump shovels at them like they were stuffing their faces with Twinkies. (laughs) Um, As an 11-year-old girl who, like, every once in a while when my mom went to get us some snacks like that, I'm like, oh my God, this is like Christmas. (laughs) And shovel my face with, you know, six Twinkies. Um, no, but I think the other way is being able to connect with people in different ways, whether that's social media and, you know, I think that not just, not just appearing to somebody once a month, uh, maybe not once a day, but at least once a week saying, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm working on. Let me know what is important to you. You know, um, basically I look at this role as a customer service role. That's really what it should be. It's a customer service role. Um, how can we help you? How can we make your life a little bit better? And um, so connecting with people on social media, I really want to do maybe just to appease. And I will say that part of me comes from the corporate world, which I don't, I'm not part of anymore. And I, there are a lot of things that I want to do to ensure that corporations do not have the level of influence over elected officials that they have presently. But one of the things I would like to do is uh, put together basically a a report of an accountability report for my constituents. What am I doing for them Um, and and provide them some level of insight into what our office is doing for them? Um, So, so, uh, you know, I think there are a number of ways to, to connect back with your community to let them know what you referred to the successes and the setbacks. And, um, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, people will believe that you can advocate for them if they see that you're actually doing the work for them. And we don't have that right now. We have a guy who's more, more interested in golfing on the weekends than coming to visit his constituents. He won't step into, um, East Austin, I would love to see uh, our congressman just come over to East Austin for one open town hall. He won't do it. Yeah. But sometimes you have to put yourself in a situation that is incredibly uncomfortable, you know, um, because your your constituents are angry with you for something, something that may or may not be your fault. But we just have a man right now in office who won't even do that. He won't he won't allow himself to be seen in public. So. I was wondering, like, like I feel like, I mean, I've, I've been to Austin several times and it's like a, you know, it, it, it seems like a place where they're going to call you out <laughs> pretty openly if, if they you disagree. Um, yeah. So he doesn't, I mean, so, well, let me ask you this, right? So, so if this is a customer service job, right, does that mean you're going to be walking around Capitol Hill with a headset on? Because if so, that is a reason to vote for Julie Oliver right there. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I do need to do the work of being in uh, chambers, actually working on legislation. Yes. But yeah, I, I want, here, can I tell you one of my ideas? Again, this gets back to um, ways of being accountable to your constituents, but also ways to minimize the cor- corrosive effect that um, big corporations have over elected officials. I would like, we already have uh, basically a legislation called equal time. And that's supposed to be, you know, in the political space where you allow both sides of an issue, uh, equal time to debate the issues, right? If you're talking about a news channel. Yeah. yeah. What if we had something that applied um, to constituent services so that for every 
hour that a congressman was going to spend with a corporate lobbyist, he had to spend an hour with real live voters from his district. That would be. I, I think that they, we would do things very, very differently in America. I think they would hear concerns that they've not ever heard before because they inoculate themselves from the uh, communications from yeah. their constituents. But let's let's force because they won't do it voluntarily. Let's force legislators to spend time with their constituents. And I get that it may not be in a meeting, face to face meeting, but they should be on the phone, listening, truly listening to what their constituents' concerns are. Um, and if they're willing to spend an hour with a lobbyist, they should at least be willing, at a minimum, to be spend, be willing to spend an equal amount of time with a real voter, real human from their district. Absolutely. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it seems so logical that it will never yeah. happen in Washington. Um, of course, right? <laughs> uh, so who knows? Based on you know the the news of last night with the. Um, the senators who are, um, and I get that it probably had very little to do with lobbying, but it definitely had to do with senators pro- protecting their own financial interests above the interests of the American public and selling off their stocks um, at a critical point where they could still make millions of dollars <clears throat> while still telling the public, hey, there's nothing to be worried about right now, nothing to be concerned about. We're all going to be fine. Meanwhile, they um, dumped travel stocks. And if there was nothing to worry about, and if it was legitimate uh, selling of stock, it couldn't have been at a worse time because, you know, who would sell stocks to hotels in February when spring break is on the horizon right. and there was nothing wrong? Right, right. exactly. You know? um, no, it, it's, it's, I mean, that's the thing. It's like uh, the whole mantra of drain the swamp is, I mean, uh, you talk about like having the bullshit meter on. It's, it's one of those things where when, when Trump says it or it's repeated by senators or, you know, Republican House, um, it just sets off. It's like everything that he says, it's really the opposite. Um, and I think that that is um, that gaslighting that's going on is one of the things that creates cynicism. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bernie Sanders, president of the United States. In 2032, at 91 years young, Bernie will finally become president, running on the campaign slogan, I will continue to yell at you people until you make me president. Bernie Sanders, just let him have it. Now, now with coronavirus, like I said, you're the first politician that I've interviewed that is, uh, you know, through, since this outbreak really happened here in, in the U.S. How is campaigning different, you know, with the crime? Mean, imagine you can't go and, and do rallies as much. Like, do you, I mean, do you just have to dress as like a Domino's pizza driver and like, yeah. you know, like, hey, by the way, vote for Julie Oliver. You know, like, how does it work now? I haven't, I haven't taken off my sweatpants in seven days. Um, <laughs> that sounds kind of fun, actually. That, like, oh my that, gosh. May, that may get me to run for something. 
<laughs> I feel like I do uh, in some way. I feel like I, I'm living back in college days where it was just too expensive to go out to do anything. So, you know, <laughs> um, so it is campaigning is very, very different. We're doing things in a virtual manner. Um, you know, Google Hangouts has become invaluable to us as a team. We connect daily. Uh, we are practicing social distancing as a campaign. So everybody is working remotely. We are not, you know, one of the first things that we wanted to do, and I don't know that any candidate has ever done this, is just feel, send out our field organizers to doors to thank people for voting. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And and nothing more. No other ask just to just to go door to door and say thank you for voting. Oh my gosh, you know you you contributed to the highest Democratic turnout um, in Texas in twenty four years. That's awesome. And we just want, we wanted to make people feel important that their vote matters, and it is. It's incredibly important. And so it's you know we're doing things virtually we're still coming up with our strategy for the general so you know the strategy work still continues and i'm super pumped that um we are going to have one of the most sophisticated organizing campaigns out of anybody in america save maybe bernie sanders Mm -hmm. but it's it's it really is exciting what we're planning on doing that can can you hold on can can you give us a little let me go a little teaser. Like, what, what are we do, What are we yeah. talking about here? What are we... Well, okay, so one of the things that we did in the primary that I am so incredibly excited about doing in the general as well is a, a novel way of committing to voter registration at scale. And it is finding, you know, Texas for, okay, quick little primer on Texas uh, uh, efforts to ensure that young people and people of color don't vote. Um, if you move in Texas and you do not update your voter registration form and you are honest with a election judge when you go to, to vote at a polling place and they say, is this your address or to confirm all your information? And you're like, oh, I moved about six months ago. Little does the voter know, but they are casting a provisional ballot mm. and most of their votes are tossed out on that ballot. Anything that is a statewide race will count. So in this election year, that would be president, Senate, railroad commissioner. Mm-hmm. But anything that's drawn essentially into a district is tossed out. So imagine you wanted to vote for a congressperson. You couldn't. Imagine you wanted to vote for a state legislature, state legislator. You couldn't. Um, it's, it's just a way to disenfranchise people who move frequently, renters, um, young people who are in college, you know, moving from one semester to the next or year to year. And I've learned more than I ever wanted to know about voter registration, but we <laughs> want to make it easy for folks, especially um, people who are transient, people who move year to year or every two years. Right. What right. I learned at Colleen, we have three precincts in Colleen. When I was block walking in 2018, when it was too late to get people registered to vote for the general, so many people are like, oh my gosh, I moved here five months ago. Um, I didn't update my voter registration. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, curses. Yeah. Um, so we send people, we base it on if they filled out a change of address form and if they have a Democratic voting history, meaning they voted in Democratic primaries. We don't know who they vote for. 
that will never that's never released as public information ever or even as uh, information on a, a freedom of information request um a FOIA request however we can see if somebody votes in a Democratic primary or if somebody votes in a Republican primary. And we can target the folks who vote in Democratic primaries so that when they move and they don't have a corresponding update to their voter registration form that updates their address, we make it easy for them. We send them one. And we have it pre-completed. All they have to do is sign it and send it back in. That's awesome. So that's part of it. Um, and, and it's amazing because um, it really works. If you are targeting voters, they want the opportunity to vote. And many of them find out when they go to the polls that um, they aren't registered to vote or they will be casting provisional ballots, um, all because they moved for no other reason. But we're just going to go ahead and disenfranchise them and take some of their votes away because they moved. So the other thing that we want to do is... um, you know, engage young people uh, and and do it in a meaningful way because their futures depend on it. And I do find that this is probably the most engaged I've ever seen people between the ages of, let's say, 16, sometimes 15, and I know they can't vote, um, but 15, 16 years old and up to, you know, 22, 23 years old. I've never seen this level of engagement. We have people um, working on our campaign, volunteering for our campaign, um, working in uh, on other campaigns, working to uh, change the narrative about what how we are um, investing in our future when it comes to fossil fuels versus renewable green energy. Um, and so ensuring that we engage folks. Again, in Texas, one of the things that Texas likes to do, even though there's a state law that requires every school to get their seniors registered to vote, Uh, Many schools ignore that. So we will be reminding schools that they need to get their seniors registered to vote Um, and um, perhaps getting some organizations involved who can who can help with that effort for the schools that choose not to do that or who choose to ignore that request, you know. Uh, maybe getting uh, legal action against schools to it and all because they want to make sure that their seniors don't get registered to vote. So getting young people organized and then uh, out to vote. We actually have UT proper in our district. We have um, North campus in our district. And what I found to be an effective tool to get kids to go to the polling locations that are on campus is to set up a table of food. So you feed a college student for free, they will be like, yes, ma'am, I will go vote. So. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think if you can top, if you can tap into like the, um, like the hungry Howie's or I don't know what the local Austin chain pizza chain is, but like little yeah. Caesar, they love little Caesar's hot and ready's. Um, exactly. As does a 34 year old man, uh, who's talking to you right now. But, well, um, as does a forty-seven-year-old woman who's talking to you right now. Are you in your pajama pants eating a hot and ready, Julie? Is that what you're telling me right now? Not yet, but I did just eat like a, a bowl of kid cereal. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by the twenty-seventh Democratic debate. Still, seven candidates left. No idea when this will end. Tune in for the same arguments about the same topics. Now with even more angry zingers. On this week's debate, 
Papa Joe stumbles to find his words, and Uncle Mikey gets blasted for calling one of his female employees in 1987 a saucy minx. The 27th Democratic Debate. Let's whittle this shit down, people. Now I'm worried that it's making us sick. The bad news is beginning to stick. Have we all become desensitized? Is there anybody left who wouldn't be surprised if a tidal wave came, or atom bombs rained, or trees turned to flames, or if presidents were game show hosts? So, Julie, I want to go ahead and ask you, just on a national level, I'm sure you know, uh, Joe Biden said the other day in a debate with Bernie Sanders, who obviously Joe looks like he's going to be the nominee, but he said in the debate with Bernie Sanders that he was going to pick a uh, a VP that was a woman. And I just want to know, uh, what will you tell Joe Biden? What would I tell Joe Biden? When he, about- when he asks if you want to be G- VP. I mean... I'll be like, yes. <laughs> um, no, but like, what, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? Is I mean, I know that you're a a pretty proud progressive who mm-hmm. you're in favor of Medicare for all a green new deal. Uh, obviously Joe is kind of running more in the moderate lane. What do you think about being able to, to pull in young people, just like you mentioned. And also as uh, you know, do you have any ideas who he should maybe nominate for his VP pick? So if I was Joe Biden and if I was advising Joe Biden, I would advise him to find a, a female candidate who is incredibly progressive. Um, I know one who, uh, you know, has a little bit of free time now. No, she probably doesn't actually, because she's still a senator. Her name is Elizabeth Warren. Um, I would actually also love to spend an hour of time with Joe to talk to him about Medicare for all, because so far in every debate, I've been able to poke holes in all of the things he throws back about why Medicare for all will not work. And I think if this time hasn't demonstrated we need uh, universal uh, single payer health care, then I don't know what other time in America would. And no, would that have pre- prevented a pandemic? Not necessarily, but if we had had universal health care, um, we would probably be able to have health care workers in parts of America that currently don't have health care workers. And I think a lot of rural Texas can feel the, the squeeze of not having enough um, doctors in their communities because um, they can't support uh, doctors in their communities. There's just not enough private pay uh, business there. And there are a lot of uninsured people in rural Texas and throughout America. Um, and we can see that we are heading towards, a, we are experiencing, I should say, a health care crisis right now. Um, and that we were one completely unprepared for, but could have mitigated if we didn't have uh, an absolute dunce in the White House. And um, we, it's just, I'm sorry, when it comes to healthcare, this is one that it just, it's so personal for me because of one, my own experience being a medic, Medicaid mom. Um, and I, I only recently started sharing what it was like to be a Medicaid mom in 1990. Because it kind of brings back, I don't know, some really a lot of emotions that aren't great because what we do is we treat Medicaid moms in America and uninsured moms um, with such disdain 
And, you know, when I was 17 and going to just get prenatal care outside of a Medicaid clinic, and for folks who don't know what Medicaid is, it is not Medicare. It does not pay at the reimbursement that Medicare uh, pays. It will reimburse providers about 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. Medicare reimbursement is much, much higher than that. Uh, Medicare will not pay for things like marketing and government relations, and it shouldn't, in my opinion. But Medicaid is pennies on the dollar. So that's why very few doctors want to be a Medicaid doctor. Um, we would line up outside of a clinic in South Oak Cliff in Dallas. And it was, it truly was like a cattle call. You just go in, you pull your number, and then you were there for the next four hours just waiting to get seen by a provider. It's not nearly that bad today, but it's, it's still a, a second tier, third tier system. Um, the other thing is when I actually had my daughter at Parkland hospital in Dallas, I got wheeled into a room where there would be crazy noises coming from like screams and moans. And I looked at the person wheeling me. I was like, please don't take me in there. And I started, I was like crying. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they wheeled me into a room where there were about 15 other women who were laboring. We labored together in one room, a tiny little curtain pulled it between our faces. So we couldn't see each other's faces, but you could see the rest of the bodies in the room. That's not okay. (laughs) Um, that's insane. Sorry. It is insane. That's crazy. So this is, this is very, very real, very, very personal to me. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden is a bad human being. I don't think that he is unfeeling or uncaring, but the reality is Medicare for all not only will lift a huge burden off of employers and allow small businesses to compete with larger businesses by not having to provide insurance we also pay an exorbitant price for adding private health insurance into this equation. And to give you some context, the highest paid health care insurance CEO gets paid $247,000 a day. Every day, 365 days a year, he gets paid $247,000. Right. That's We pay for that. Nuts. What, what value is that CEO adding to our healthcare system? Zero, nothing. So I would love to talk to Joe Biden about uh, Medicare for all. I would love to talk to him about the economics of a green new deal and how we could restructure our tax code to, to benefit uh, and incentivize renewable investment and to lift our 650 billion um, annual subsidy off of the fossil fuel industry and lay it at the feet of renewable energy. I tell you, we could get to 100% renewable much quicker than 2035 if we actually did that very thing. Just re reorganize our priorities. How much though? How much of it though do you think is just not necessarily Joe Biden's belief system or or you know Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, the the moderates that ran. Versus just the sheer political courage. And and to their point, you know, is is running more in the moderate lane, uh, will that help them get elected? Because it does appear, I mean, if you look at the momentum that obviously Bernie had and then the turnaround that, Obiden, that Biden had, um, I mean, it, it seems as if, like, that is that is the elephant in the room, right? Is is being able to get elected and and be able to try to make changes, whether they're big or or small. Um, what do you think about that? How much of it is just political courage, in your opinion, versus how they really believe? Um, I think a, a 
lot of it has to de- uh, depend on, I think a lot of it depends on political courage. And pe- the Democratic Party um, has been so worried about winning over this imaginary swing voter. Um, I, I am, okay, if we, if we take a step back in time, I'm really hopeful that we learned our lesson from 2016 and everybody will turn out to support whoever is top of ticket, regardless of who it is, whether it's Biden or Bernie. Although, like you said, it is increasingly looking like it's going to be Biden. Um, And only in a world of white male politics could this sort of thing happen. Um, uh, A man who fumbled through every conceivable debate. And again, I I think Biden is a very, very nice person. I have no problem with Biden. And if he ends up top of ticket, he is 100 percent of my support. But a man who pretty much fumbled through every debate... um, coming out on top when there were some people who were far more um, competent and had more political courage than he did on this debate stage with him. Um, it, it, it stings a little bit, but I think the democratic party thinks they have a one size fits all sort of mentality of how you reach voters. I don't think people want a one size fits all. Um, I think that Democrats Again, I'm hopeful that we've learned our lesson and that we will vote for. I know in November, whoever is the Democratic nominee, I will be voting for and I will be encouraging every one of my constituents to vote for as well. So I don't think there was a, a real risk of, you know, if Bernie was top of ticket, no, the Democrats weren't going to vote for him. I don't think that was a risk at all because people know on the Democratic side that Bernie is a much better option than Trump. And... Um, for this imaginary swing voter that people think exists, if they do exist, I think it's a unicorn, quite honestly, um, or a very, very small percentage of the population. People put their jerseys on and they wear their jerseys until they're angry with their team and they rip their jersey off and say, I found another team. Right. Um, and I think that is what is going to happen. And for Republicans or these swing voters that the Democratic Party keeps um, – um, trying to appease or assuage Republicans, if they're done with their party, are going to come to the Democratic Party and vote, or they're going to stay home. Yeah, they will do what Democrats did in 2016. So I don't think there was really any fear of losing the swing voter if Bernie was top of ticket. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think that I mean I can tell you you mentioned it earlier. I've got one of the more progressive platforms out of any candidate running in Texas for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have Republicans reaching out to me um, fairly consistently that they will be voting for me for the first time or did vote for me for the first time in the primary. I didn't change my messaging to them. Right. Right. I didn't move to the middle for them. Yeah. They know exactly where I stand. And again, I think when people are done, you know, go back to your team analogy you know, there are pe- when Tom Brady was done with the Patriots, he was really done with the Patriots. Yeah, yeah. You can, uh, can I just so, say I'm gonna really get I'm really gonna try to get Tom Brady to retweet this podcast just because that's two Tom Brady callouts. That's two more Tom Brady callouts than I usually get in a podcast. I like you a lot, Joy. Uh, what I'm saying oh, thank is, you won, you. you've won Although, me you, over. I gotta be honest. Tom Brady fan. And again, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying that. And you might not be able to get him to retweet it because I just said that. Um, 
I don't think he's a human. I think I think he was made in a government laboratory somewhere. <laughs> he looks like a human, um, but he's clearly not a human. <laughs> Oh, well, well, let me last question on that matter. I, I'm just wondering how on a, on a scale of one to 10, how important do you think it is that Biden, if he is the nominee, pick a, a progressive, a real progressive? I think it's, I think it's a very important. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, really important. I also think that, um, picking somebody, I mean, obviously the vice president has a limited, uh, uh, at least a limited influence in legislation. Um, I also think, so I, I get that that's not necessarily the role of the vice president, although an administration will push forward legislation that it believes in. Um, but I also think that it's incredibly important that we pick somebody who can help heal the nation. And there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. And um, whether that's healing between, you know, the the two sides of America, whether that's the healing between America and countries that have been our uh, allies for decades that we have tossed aside under this current administration, whether that's the healing of what we have done to immigrants who are looking at our country as still the country of hope and opportunity, and yet we've turned them away or put them in cages. We need somebody who, who can exercise a tremendous amount of diplomacy and bring some healing to the nation. Yep. That's a great point. Um, I got one more question before we get to yeah. our, our our little uh, it's a little segment I like to call uh, five lazy questions I wrote in five minutes. Um, but, but before we get to that, I do have one question for you that I I don't think I've ever um, I don't know if it's a tough question for me even to broach. I think it's, a, it's certainly a tough question for a lot of politicians to broach as well. Um, but when you have you know, I think a lot of people have folks um, that they know or in their families or friends or whatever who are sort of single, maybe single issue voters or, you know, when it comes to being pro-life, like that is their main issue that they vote on. Right. And they may right. they may have because of their religious beliefs, they may believe in a, a social safety net. Right. They may believe in a lot of the things that I think uh, progressives like yourself believe as well, but they just can't. You know, what do you say to somebody who loves Julie Oliver uh, in a lot of the policies that you stand for, but at the same time, they're like, well, you know what, because of your stances, because you're pro-choice, I just can't vote for you. What do you say to those folks? Well, I would say, first of all, if somebody is truly a single issue voter and they cannot get behind uh, anybody who uh, believes in choice, I'm probably not going to try to win them over to begin with because it's, it, you know, I could be talking to people. I, I'd rather probably be spending my time talking to somebody who, who maybe has lost hope in the system and trying to instill some hope in the system. Um, than somebody who thinks, you know, that you know, their religious belief won't allow them to, to grant grace. I also have a very hard time, um, and, and, and I don't want to, I certainly don't ever want to seem condescending to somebody who has a different set of religious beliefs than me. And if I could take somebody like that one-on-one -on -one, kind of through passages of the Bible that I think are equally as important as what they are saying is 
you know, is the line in the sand on, um, you know, abortion, which I don't read that in the Bible. Um, you know, the Bible speaks again and again about, um, how we should take, uh, foreigners among us and treat them as their own, treat them as our own, and that we should take care of orphans and widows. And yet we are not doing that at our border. And I don't know how you can elevate one set of ideological beliefs over another set of ideological beliefs and somehow feel like that's okay. But I do know if they're, if uh, this is, it's a hard question. Now you're getting into theology. Um, I so, mean, but, but I, the, the, the reason I asked though is I, because I think yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's an elephant in the room when it comes to it a is. certain block of voters. And I think one of the answers that, I mean, if I was running for office to your first point, like, you're not necessarily going to try to win those people over. Like it's like, there's only so much that I feel like, you know, I would be able to do in that situation, but I don't know as, as somebody you're, I mean, I don't know how, if you've seen this, you, you live in Texas and I, like I know to, it's Austin, but I, like I it's Texas. So. I'm, I'm on the continuum of pro-life that takes care of a child, you know, and a family, um, upon birth and delivery. Um, that. That is truly being pro-life, is taking care of the most vulnerable among us right now who are with us. That is pro-life. It is pro-birth to be anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not pro-life. And, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with people, more, more family members than people, um, strangers. Oddly enough, this doesn't come up for me a lot. Most people don't ask about this in a uh, forum or a town hall. But I, I bring it down to um, a couple things. One, when I was 17 years old, I had the choice. I chose to keep my child, but I had choice. Um, I've met a lot of women who are 20 years older than me who didn't have the choice and they either gave up their child, um, for adoption and they regret it, or they chose to get an unsafe abortion. And that was very, very traumatizing for them. Um, secondly, I, you know, I like to share a story and this is a very, very real story of uh, a friend of mine who chose to get an abortion. She has a daughter who's the same age as my youngest daughter. When she went in for her, um, first, uh, sonogram, they discovered early on that there were no arms, no legs, and only half of a brain in the developing fetus. And it really wasn't even a developing fetus. This, it was completely on life support inside of the womb. As soon as it, well, if she had been forced to birth the child at term or the, this fetus, I should say at term, because this was not a normal functioning, uh, thriving, um, it, it could never have been, it would have died outside of the womb and they would have had to watch it die outside of the womb. I can think of nothing more traumatizing to a family than to force a family to watch a baby. Nobody wants to watch a baby die. Um, than to watch a baby die and then have to, to bury it. I think the most compassionate thing that we can do is in that situation, allow the woman and her healthcare provider to decide what is best for her family and herself. Right. 
and very, I found very few people who are willing to push back on that one. I said, what, and I'll ask, I said, what would you have done in that situation? Yeah. And almost always is, well, I, I couldn't have made any choice, you know, that that, that wasn't, you know, and I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's not your choice to make, nor is it governor Abbott's, nor is it Roger Williams, nor is it Donald Trump's. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not, it definitely shouldn't be three old white men uh, in, tra- <laughs> in charge of that. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Stephen Miller's Pure White Chocolates. Manufactured in the whitest place on earth, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Stephen Miller's Pure White Chocolates come with no fillers, extra butter, extra sugar, extra milk, and a dash of pure white prejudice. Stephen Miller's Pure White Chocolates. Eat what you love, as long as it's white. Can we know freedom without ever being chained? Can we know love unless we know about pain? Well, what can I say? So, this is a little bit of a lighter topic, a little segment that I want to do here at the end. And um, it's called uh, Five Lazy Questions I Wrote in Five Minutes. So, uh... Without further ado, Julie, uh, my first question for you, what is your favorite piece of merch in your merch store? It is by far my Smash the Patriarchy (laughs) t-shirt. And how much do those go for? Because uh, I have a a fiance who I am pretty sure um, it's her birthday tomorrow and I'd love to uh, buy one for her. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh i think hang on i think they're uh 25 dollars okay. i think oh my god i don't know they're 30 dollars. sorry okay 30 dollars. 30 dollars. i had to go online and look i'm like i don't know <laughs> um, um i had a little secret stash downstairs oh do you oh nice okay okay uh i was gonna say i was like at least i mean just like the the five like the, you know, the farm that you have there, I hope has, has got like a Julie Oliver t-shirt or something like that. You know, the cats and the dogs, um, which is, that's my, that's my, that's my second question for you. You said you've got four cats and a dog. Uh, I know this is kind of an awkward question, but which one is your favorite? Um, Trevor, my cat, he's my baby. I've had him since he was, um, four, four months old and he's now 12. Oh, that's awesome. Trevor the cat. Oh, I like, and you know, I like how you said you've got a favorite, you know, you owned it. Like most people be like, no, they're all my, no way. You've got a favorite. Of course, kid. We, have, of course we have favorites. <laughs> uh, do you have a political role model? And if so, who is it? Oh my gosh. I have several political role models. I would say, honestly, I think, um, two people who ran for president that I respect the most, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, I do because they have shifted the narrative away from, again, the typical Democratic establishment talking points. And we're talking about things that we've never talked about before at a national level. Um, for a lot of the, the women who were elected in 2018, I count all of them role models. Um, you know, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Pramila Jayapal, um, Katie Porter, I had and I love when she schools CEOs. God, it makes me so happy. And then locally, um, 
You know, uh, Lloyd Doggett has been in Congress since I moved to Austin, and he has been an incredible role model of what a, a servant leader looks like, and and a servant leader who's willing to stay connected to his community and allow his community to come find him at town halls, open town halls, and ask him really hard questions. That's really cool. Um, see, some people have to like really stretch to figure out who their political role. You just rattled off like 10 of them. That was awesome. Um, okay. So I did a little research and, uh, I want to ask you, I I went on your Instagram page and I want to ask you, uh, I want to say, first of all, you're quite the pole dancer. Um, could you, could you tell folks about that? Yes. Um, So when my team actually came to me and said, hey, we're going to do a pole dance, I was thinking what almost everybody thinks a pole dance is. Right. Um, right. I was like, oh, God, no, we're not going to do that. I'm a mother of four. (laughs) Uh, It was the funniest thing. There's a wonderful woman here in Austin named Erica Nix, and she is like a 1980s aerobics instructor she's not she really is like a younger than me but she has the best um dance moves she wears spandex she puts headbands around her head and we actually quite literally danced from our campaign headquarters to the voting location to the polls we we pole danced and um it was so much fun we were pole dancing to a lot of uh, empowering uh music and um I know, we just had a good time. So pole dancing, it was dancing our ways to the polls, making it fun to go vote. I love it. And it, anybody could have joined us. And they could have gone through Erica's two chests of 1980s vintage uh, spandex. I was going to say, do you still have the outfit? Do you still? I don't. That was, that was Erica's. I was so impressed. Can I say, you should add that to the merch store. You should add... You, like your create your own line. Do do what Trump's doing, Julie. Just basically create your own line of products and use whatever like use the platform that you have to to I love that. grift. <laughs> I love that. The, the whole the line of merch made specifically for pole dancing. I if you can get if you can get Jane Fonda's endorsement, I think that you may have uh, a. <laughs> You, you've got this. You've got this. I'm pretty sure my my Republican challenger will use that against me if I try that one. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the politician right there. Um, yeah. All right, last question. It's something. It's kind of the standard five lazy questions that I, I ask everybody I interview. Uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? my gosh, my go-to karaoke song. I love Diana Ross, although I'm not sure that I can sing in her key, but I love any old Diana Ross song. Um, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on it. You would have to ask. Oh my gosh. There was one that I loved when I was like 12 years old and it was, it was post Diana Ross and the Supremes, but I love Diana Ross and the Supremes. And I will say, uh, love child is one of my favorite songs. Okay. Love child never meant to be love child, you know, um, society. What about in, in, endless love, she, endless love. I'm coming oh out. My God, yes. I love Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. That's my Kelly. It's like Reese's peanut butter cups. The best combination <laughs> in the world. It's like Twinkies. It's like Twinkies, like for, Twinkies. For, for MAGAs. An amazing yellow cake filled with white, amazing goo. <laughs> um, 
This is my okay. Last final final question. This is a bonus. I just thought of this because so when I go, I've never done chicken shit bingo, uh, but I've heard about it in Austin. Like, tell me what is like a good night out in your opinion in Austin? Like, what does it entail? Okay, so it would it would be dependent upon whether you ask like twenty five year old Julie, thirty five year old Julie, or forty five year old Julie. Um, 45 year old Julie, who's really now 47 year old Julie, my favorite thing to do in the world. I still love Alamo draft house and I'm so bummed out that we cannot go to Alamo draft house right now. Um, mm. Alamo draft house is our movie and eatery and they have like Alamo draft house makes it so fun to go to the movies. You actually arrive 30 minutes before the movie starts because they have the funniest, um, stream of small connected short films or old commercials that are somehow related to the movie that you'll be watching. Oh, that's cool. And so that's, that's what 45 year old Julie loves. That is a fun night out for Julie. 35 year old Julie would have loved it. It would have been dependent on whether she was going out with her girlfriends or going out with her husband, going out with her husband, an amazing meal, um, my husband is a little bit of a foodie. I think he would be embarrassed if I said that about him, but he does. He's an amazing cook, but he appreciates good food too. So going to an amazing restaurant, um, followed by going to a concert. He's a musician and he always, he knows who's good. He actually knows who's good in town. So it's, it's fun to go see up and coming bands that are truly amazing. Um, before they hit it big, if Julie was going out with her friends, it would probably just, be th- the only three of us with um, two bottles of wine in one of our homes, and we would start, I don't know, laughing and reliving times when we were uh, probably 30 instead <laughs> of 35. 25-year-old no, um, Julie, that was a young, I was so young back then. Oh, my God, I don't even know if I can remember back that far. I yeah. think that was when I had so many young kids at home. I was pregnant. Actually, 25-year-old Julie was pregnant. So I was pregnant with my third kiddo. I was probably going to bed at 8 o'clock every night. Oh, man. So basically, you just got you just got more, like, time out. More, you, got, you got more fun as you got older. Like, that's basically... Yes. So for all of y'all who are much younger than me, it is something to look forward to. That and losing your eyesight. (laughs) Well, Julie uh, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me on the Justin News Podcast. Thanks so much for talking with me. Uh, I know we we talked about a lot of serious stuff, a lot of, well, I mean, basically, like, you just gave me the game plan for what I'm going to do in Austin. I mean, I I turned, the next time I'm in Austin, I'll I'll probably be 35. So I'll... uh, I'll try to call up a couple girlfriends, get a couple bottles of yeah. wine, and relive the I'll old be, days. <laughs> I'll introduce you to my two best girlfriends. And that'd be great. You can, become, you can be like the fourth friend. You oh, know? That'd be great. Oh, my gosh. I can see it. <laughs> it's playing out right now in my brain. Um, well, thank you so much. And I urge people, if you live in Austin, obviously, when it comes to the general, she's already won the primary, but go vote. Go vote for Julie. Go support her. If you, when it's Whenever we can go knock on doors go knock on doors for bring a domino's pizza whatever and uh and and where can folks find you online if they don't live in austin but they want to support you and get the word out julieoliver.org that's our website julieoliver.org i think on facebook it's julie for texas um twitter and i don't know why i didn't make a cohesive uh, handles for all of these but um 
Julie Oliver for, uh, TX. So Twitter handle is Julie Oliver TX. Julie Oliver TX. That's fantastic. And uh, check out her Instagram page. You can watch a little pole dancing action. It's uh, that's right. It's quite the sight. Let me tell you. <laughs> I was yeah. I, I when I saw that I was like, oh, she's going to be fun to talk to. I'm looking forward to this one. So, uh, Julie, you you're great to talk to. And again, thank thanks so you. much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you.